Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Most biologists will unhesitatingly tell you that the reason why people are so good at recognizing faces is because it's highly advantageous, evolutionarily speaking, for members of such a social species as humans to be able to quickly recognize and assess friend or foe. That's quite true, of course, but at some level doesn't actually provide a real explanation for what exactly is going on. How does it work, precisely? What's the mechanism? Well. That's what Stanford University neuroscientist Kalanit Grill-Spector spends her days pondering, but not just quietly musing about possibilities, but rigorously investigating the question through a wide array of exciting new brain scanning experiments. Maybe we should actually just start at the basics and just talk about some of the new diagnostic techniques and and we can start with functional MRI and then we can move off into all sorts of other, other directions. So here's Here's a question to start with, which is, um, I've heard about all these things. I'm not a neuroscience guy. How does functional MRI, first of all, differ from the normal MRI machine that, that most people are familiar with, with medical injuries and so forth? And how does it differ from PET scans that other people might have heard of? Okay, so uh, fMRI has really been a revolution in cognitive neuroscience. It started like in the early 90s. It's the same machine that does the MRI for your, your knee scans. Right. It's the only thing that instead of measuring the tissue, we're measuring uh, changes in brain metabolism. So when you make have things about thoughts and do some sensory uh, processing, um, your brain uses uh, oxygen, right. and changes in oxygenation levels um, affects the local uh, magnetic field, and this is picked up by the scanner. So when we went downstairs and I put Kevin inside the scanner, his head was in a coil, and this coil picks up these signals in the brain that are linked to his uh, neural activation in the regions that were activated by whatever task he was doing. Right, so I think a lot of people, I, yeah. I used to, uh, when I first heard about fMRI, yeah. I was confused by that because I, I naturally, I have much more uh, faith in engineers perhaps okay. than I should. So I thought, oh, they're measuring the brain, so they must be measuring the, the electrical signals immediately. And, and, and of course, what they're doing is they're actually measuring, just as you said, the oxygen related yeah. to the blood supply yeah. that's flowing in because of neural activity. Yeah, so you're not measuring direct neural activity. Um, you're measuring a bold single blood oxygen level dependent signal. And in fact, you think that there's going to be less oxygen because you've used it to for the metabolism, but the brain overcompensates, so you get an overflow cool. of oxygenated hemoglobin. And really what we're picking with the scanner is a amount of deoxyhemoglobin, and that actually gets washed off. And this is why the signal goes up. 
So it's an indirect measure of brain activity. The reason that is different from PET is that it's non-invasive. So PET, you need to inject subjects with a radioactive material. Right. That's an invasive procedure. With fMRI, you don't inject anything. And this has been really the power because you can bring the same person and run the experiments over and over again or over time or over development or over the lifespan. And this has been a really big uh, uh, breakthrough because you can peer into people's brains without doing anything to them invasively. And you said the early 90s is when they, they, they developed this technology? Is so uh, the first uh, fMRI papers that were published were published in PNS in 1992. Okay. And there are two groups that did this in parallel. One was a group that was then in, in Bell Labs at Seiji Ogawa. Right. And then the other group was a group at MGH. And the first author in that paper was Ken Kwong. And basically, they had the first um, experiments where they showed people pictures versus no pictures. They had flashing checkerboards, and they could see an increase in the back of the brain where we have visual cortex when people saw stuff and when they didn't. So these are the first two papers of the field. So these guys go, so in general, um, your own um, patients or people involved in your own research yeah. for your own studies, they go into this machine, yeah. and you have them uh, you have them focused on various experiments, and we'll get to this when we start sure. talking more specifically about vision. Um, but they're focused on, on, on doing particular tasks and thinking about particular things or seeing particular things or yeah. what have you. And how long do they stay in there for in general? So they usually stay between an hour or two. So usually what we do, we put the subject in the scanner right. and first run an anatomy scan. We want to see their brain anatomy. The reason we want to see the brain anatomy because we're interested which part of the brain is involved in what function. And also we create these, I'll show you later, these beautiful cortical reconstructions that we can see the brain from all three dimensions because the way we acquire stuff in the scanner slices like in a CT scan right. and you want to get the 3D reconstruction. That takes about five to ten minutes. Okay. After we do that, then what we go and do, that's called just MRI, okay. anatomical MRI. Yeah. So let, me, let me just stop you there. So, yeah. so does that mean that people's brain anatomy differs significantly? Like, I would have thought that this would be relatively constant, but it's, it's not. It, it... So we're interested, so there are two things. One is the field, as a field, we're interested how brain anatomy does change. I'm, in, for example, looking at how it might change from childhood to adulthood. Okay. And there are some things that will happen in certain diseases, for example, like Alzheimer's disease, that there are actually changes to the brain anatomy because of the disease. Right. Second thing, we personally really want to look how function is implemented in each person's brain. So your brain and my brain have the same general pattern of what we call cortical folding. There are hills and valleys, yeah. but there are idiosyncrasy for each brain, and we really want to understand the relationship between function and anatomy in each person's brain. So we want to take a picture, really, of every subject's So this brain. is really a baseline, because, because every, there's really enough variety, variation between different people. That's, that's fascinating. I would never would have thought that. I would have thought... So, so in one hand, there is variety. In the other hand, there is stability. Sure. Right? So... And part of the stuff that we're trying to figure out is what is stable and what is variable across okay. people. So there's more variety like than the hands, right? So there are always five fingers yeah. <laughs> in your hands. There's a little bit more variety in the number of cortical folds, but the big ones are very stable across people. Okay. Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah. You, were, you, were, you were saying, so that's the first thing that you the do? The first thing that we do, okay. and that takes between five to ten minutes. Sometimes we do another kind of scan that's called diffusion tensor imaging or diffusion weighted image that lets you, you actually measure how the water diffuses in the brain, and the reason that you want to do that is if you want to look at the wiring, how, which part of the brain is connected to another part of the brain, 
there are these really big white matter bundles. They're called fascicles. Mm -hmm. And because of them, that they're myelinated, they're very directional. So the water doesn't diffuse in all okay, directions. Hold on, hold on a sec. Where's yeah. the water in my brain? I, where, where? Your, your <laughs> brain is all water. My brain's all water. <laughs> yes. Actually, all what we're measuring in fMRI is how the magnetic field affects the water molecules. We're measuring uh, um, okay. the hydrogen atoms, basically, at the end of the day. So because of the... Water doesn't propagate freely uh, along these um, fascicles. Right. Um, so it will go in the direction, most of the direction of diffusion will be parallel to the fascicle. We could measure the connectivity, uh, the white matter connection between one part of the brain and another part of the brain. So this is another kind of anatomical scan. And the hope is, this is a much more novel uh, method in the field, and the hope is it's going to give us a wiring diagram. So these, the these, these fascicles, sorry, back up. What, what are these fascicles exactly? Fa fas so basically, the building block of the brain is a neuron. Right. Neuron has a cell body, and it has dendrites where it right. gets information, and it has axons where it transmits information. Right. Some of the connections are local. So in a given brain areas, there are local connections. Some of the connections are long range. Okay. And the long-range connections are kind of really like wiring fibers in your house, right? So you suppose the back of the brain, the visual cortex, wants to connect to the front of the brain that wants to make decisions. So a, a lot of these axons come together in a bundle, and the bundle transmits information, let's say, from one lobe to another lobe of the brain. To get the transmission more efficient, you want to myelinate. It's kind of like... Um, so it's like a cable. It's almost yeah, like, like a cable, right. yeah. Sorry, all my electrical engineering terms are in Hebrew. It's like, uh, <laughs> uh, I got stuck. Um, we're, not, we're not building a brain just because of your electrical engineering background, are we? Like no, if, no, if no, you no, no. If, if you would have been a, been a vet, we, we wouldn't have this shape like a horse or something like this. No, yeah. no, no, okay. no. Anyway, but because it's, it's long range, you, right. you, you don't want the transmission to get broken. You have myelin. Right. So these are really a bunch of axons that are together in a big cable. Okay. And the stable, so for strength from an evolutionary perspective. It's, it's a signal decays. Basically, the electrical signal decays over distance. So in order for it ah. not to decay, you cool. You protect it. Yeah, with myelin. And so the and so the water goes along this. So yeah. because when we when we look at this, we can then actually see where these cables are and where the connection. That's yeah. really cool. So and this is like a technology that's still evolving. We're still trying to build these wiring diagrams, and we can measure the big bundles. It's hard to see how they get exactly into cortex. Mm. But this is another kind of anatomical scan that so, you could do. So how, sorry, so how can you see, so I get the fact that the water's now going and it's yeah. mirroring these, these, these cables, yeah. but now how do you detect that again? Because... So basically what you do is um, you get a first an anatomy picture of the brain, and right. then you actually do... And that's what you've done with your MRI. Right? Yeah, yeah. And then what you do is you actually... Do run a diffusion scan, so you can run scans. Usually, you don't want to see these flow effects because they're Because if you want to measure the tissue and right. there's flow in the tissue, that's bad. You're going to get a distortion, right? Right. So you're going to get a distorted image. But if you actually want to measure how the water propagates, what you do is you actually you get the water to diffuse in many, many directions. Let's say 100 directions, and then you can build out of this what. We one way that's commonly done is the tensor. It summarizes the average diffusion in each voxel. So voxels, like we take the brain and make it into little cubes, little volumes. Those are like pixels, except yeah, they're it's volume pixels. It's okay. volume pixel. Okay. So basically, instead of having you, you want to see what would be the main direction of diffusivity. You model it with a tensor, which is kind of like a cigar shape. Okay. It tells you which direction it goes and how directional it is. Sure. So, um, and the reason that's difficult because some parts, all the 
cables run in the same way. But then there are places where the cables will cross each other, and then that becomes more complicated to measure. So what people have been working is actually how to model these crossing fibers so we can deal and actually sure. get a good wiring diagram of the brain. Cool. So... So, yeah. so, so, yeah. so I, I, I keep interrupting you, yes. which makes it difficult for you to tell your story. But this is the spirit of a conversation, you see. You don't no, it's good. No. <laughs> no, but I, 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 what's clear to me may not be clear to you. So if you don't interrupt it's me, uh, not, so. uh, you should. Okay, so you do the, so you, you do the first scan. Uh, then you, you've done, you've done some of this other stuff yeah. that you can understand uh, if you want to do diffusion tensor business. Yeah. And then, and then. And then what you do, what most of us do in cognitive neuroscience is called functional magnetic resonance imaging, and basically. You put a subject in the scanner, usually under a task. When I study vision, I put them in the scanner. The room is dark. So there's no visual stimulation. They have a screen in front of them. They see it through a mirror, usually. And sometimes I don't show them anything, so that's going to be my baseline. And then in certain intervals, I'm going to show them different kinds of pictures. And right. I want to see which part of the brains react to different kinds of pictures. So basically what I'm looking at is what is the... Uh, local brain activity in response to the picture versus when I didn't show any visual stimulation. And this is where you get neural activation, and this is what I measure with functional MRI. And you asked me how long does this take? Yes. So it's up to the experimenter. So when we scan little kids, we all put them for 15 minutes. Uh, if we scan uh, people who are, can stay longer and concentrate for longer, we can scan them for an hour. How, little kids can stay there for 15 minutes? Yeah. In the, yeah. in, in the dark? Yeah. Wow. We, we train them with a mock scanner. We have a scanner. It looks like a scanner, sounds like a scanner, but then take pictures in the brain. And we have um, this motion detector, and we have a target, and we just train them to stay still. So what's really critical for us are two things in the functional MRI scan. One, that the subject is awake, and then they, they do the task. And second, that they don't move, because what we're really measuring is millimeters of brain. So we can measure is a resolution of fMRI is anywhere between one to three millimeters. So you really need to be very comfortable when you're in and not move your head because then we cannot track the activity in that location right. over time, basically. Right. And is the head, so is the head free? Do you, does it get set somehow and that you have to hold it in a particular, I mean, I understand you have to hold it in a particular place, yeah. but is there, is it aided at all or does it work? No. So basically we have the subjects lying very comfortably in the coil. We will put some foam padding around them, right. just so they'll be comfortable and feel snug, but it's really up to the subject to stay still. So we really rely heavily on the cooperation of the subjects. We don't restrain them in any particular way. Right. And I asked you this before, but I'm going to ask you okay. again. Was there anybody that um, that couldn't handle it? That uh, So the so three things that might be annoying about scans are the noise. It makes a loud noise. So right. we put people with earplugs, so the noise is not going to be bothersome. Um, some people who don't like tight places, if they're claustrophobic, they sure. don't, might not like to be there. And I had one instance of a claustrophobic subject. And occasionally you'll get what's called peripheral nerve stimulation. So when we have the scanners, the magnet changes the magnetic field rather rapidly. Mm -hmm. um, and some people who might be muscular um, might get some peripheral nerve stimulation. So you might get some twitching. Uh, it doesn't happen that often, but it might happen, and if somebody's shake is uncomfortable, we always take them out. So we put them in, when you film, we had the squeeze ball, right. and so we give them because it's noisy, so if they talk, we might not hear them, so they just press it, and at any time, we just stop the experiment and get the subject out. So if subject wants to get out, they get out. And when you're asking for subjects, 
Mm-hmm. Um, where do you, where do you get them from, and 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 how does that work? Do you ask for non-muscular subjects? Do you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't have to be muscular. It's really about the size of your body because it's like resonance, right? Sure. So it's really about being at a particular size relative to the changes in the magnetic field. So. It could happen to non-muscular subjects. Sure, no, no, no. Yeah, I was yeah. just being silly. But but yeah. the subjects that you're getting for these for these experiments that we're going to get to yeah. in a moment, um, where where do they come from? In general? they're all volunteers. Um, we get them from the local Stanford community. We've also um, my lab has also studied development, so we've scanned children and adolescents, and we get them from the local communities through just ads, like in community kiosk and. And things like that. Or so do you get people who are addicted to this? Who just keep coming back and back? They can't get enough of their scans. They, no. Let me in, let me into the no. fMRI machine, or no, I'm gonna. No. We look. We we have some screening. We don't want people to come from. You know, people will have some kind of altruistic motives that we you need to filter them out. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> we tell people up front, like you know, we cannot tell you if you have any disease. Right. We are doing science. Uh, so if people want to. Make sure that the brain's all right. We, we filter them out. They really need to come to volunteer for and have curiosity about research. They cannot have some independent motive that sure. get diagnosed for something. But do you ever wonder, in terms of your sample size, that if you're pulling from the Stanford region and people who are really excited about science, that you're actually getting a statistically significant sample? Because, I mean, you're dealing with pretty high level people on average, right? I mean. Yeah. So, um, we have a variety of, of people. Um, for studying vision, right. I don't think that really matters much, honestly. I'm sure. Right? As long as, what we really care is that people have corrected to normal vision. So right. if, if you need glasses, right. you'll come with your no, contact no, no. lenses and stuff no, no, like no. that. Right. Right. Um, we have, over the years, actually have accumulated, you know, like hundreds and hundreds of brains. And we had now a recent collaboration with a group in Ulich uh, in Germany that looked at postmortem brains, and their brains look the same. So in terms of the anatomy and in terms right. of the field that I'm studying, I'm not really very concerned about sure. that. Um, uh, w- just a little bit more before we move into vision. Um, if you look at these scanners, um, you mentioned they started off in the 90s. Presumably the resolution has changed uh, considerably in that time. Have other things changed in terms of the, the, the diagnostic yeah. ability and so forth? Yeah. So the scanners themselves were available before the 90s. The first imaging stuff in humans had right. started in the 90s. The earliest scanners were half a Tesla, which were not good enough to get, they were not strong enough to pick up the signals from the brain. So the earliest neuroimaging scanners are one and a half Tesla scanners. These are the 90s scanners. Today's the typical scanner is a three Tesla scanner. Three Tesla means it's 60,000 times the magnetic field of Earth, so it's really a big uh, magnetic field. Yeah. The stationary magnetic field does nothing to you. You don't feel it. Uh, and what we're really is making local variation in these magnetic fields. This is what we're measuring with the MRI. Right. Um, there are some labs that have moved. There's a lab in Minnesota that has moved to, and even at Stanford, we have a high field scanner. It's like a seven Tesla scanner. Oh, really? And in Minnesota, I think they've gone, they surely have a 9.4. I think they're strongest, like 14 point something. And these are more harder to use because they're not plug and play. And today's standard in the field is a three Tesla scanner because it's plug and play. It's available in the clinic. So by plug and play, you just mean in, in, uh, in, in terms of being able to um, not have advanced training and being able to get it, set it up easily and so forth? What, what, do, you, what do you mean exactly? A plug and play is like, mean like you can buy a laptop 
and get to use it as long you as you know. Just get it off the rack yeah, or yeah. something like that. Whereas a seven Tesla scanner, it's, it's in physics is more complicated. They are not clinical use, so some of like getting the brain to be homogeneous and stuff right. like that is more complicated, and you need a physics team. Really? To run the scanner, yeah. So, so that's what I mean. It's plug and play. Yeah. Okay. So so it's it, I, I'm not. So can you tell me why? I, I don't understand that. Why, why? So what happens is that if you want to take a picture of the brain, yeah. you want the image, suppose you want to take it like a photograph, it will be like, you have different tissue types, right? The right. so gray matter and the white matter. Gray matter is where neurons are, white matter is where the connections are. You want the intensity of the photograph, the grayness, to be equal across all the gray matter in the brain. Right. And all the white to be the same color, okay, right. same intensity. Um, and you do this by having a homogeneous field. So the external magnetic field needs to be very stable right. across the size of the object that you measure. And you need to have really good coils to pick up these pictures. So what happens as a scanner goes up, keeping the magnetic field homogeneous over the size of an object like the brain becomes more difficult. Sure. So if you're scanning a mouse, which has a tiny brain, that's no brainer. Because you make it a really small bore, and you can, you know, right. it's not hard. So the, 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 the reason that it, the physical challenge is actually to get the, the external field to be homogenous across the extent of the object you want to measure. Okay. So that's why you need a physics team. Okay. Okay. Um, so, but in the last 20 or 25 years, um, in terms of resolution, in terms of diagnostic ability, things have okay. changed remarkably. Yes. But let, let's move into... I just want to say yeah, yeah, something say about that. So the, these are two things that have changed. One is the intensity of the scanner. Right. Second of all would be the coils that we pick up the signals. Okay. And third of all is the resolution that we're measuring. And that's really been an improvement in terms of the sequences that we've been using to acquire these brain images and the coils. So, for example, my lab has really moved into scanning was really small. Voxel. So the standard in the field would be three to four millimeters, and we've scanned at one and a half millimeter. Okay. So what I'm saying, resolution in my mind, I'm combining these. Uh, what I really mean is is the data that you're actually yeah. able to to take away from this. But of yeah. course, there's a more technical aspect of resolution. So I'm in fact conflating things that shouldn't be conflated. Okay. okay. <laughs> no, but we are so, able to pick up. So when I started, like I picked up things with chunks of like three to six millimeters, and now right. I'm picking up things for chunks of one and a half millimeter. It's a big change in the resolution. Sure. So tell me more about your history and how you got, you got into, into this field, uh, and then we can move into what specifically you're doing and, and, and the whole ideas of uh, a vision. So how did, how did that start for you? Well, um, I took the long route. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I started with electrical engineering, uh, so I was trained in an electrical engineer, but I found it extremely boring. Yeah. Um, when, when did you start finding it boring, by the way, was it? Probably in my first year. Wow. Um, Bad decision. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, there are aspects of electrical engineering that I really liked. I really liked the computer science part, so it's not true that everything was boring. Uh, but the hardware part wasn't very um, intriguing for me. And the problem for me really was engineering, that I was kind of a why kind of person. In engineering, they don't care about answering why. They just want to make it work. So it wasn't a really good fit with my personality. I've noticed that. <laughs> what? Not all engineers, but, but almost all. So this is, I think that's, that was for me, it's not like that the engineering was boring. It was just not fit for the kind of... It was just the people. 
and other people. It just didn't fit what I wanted to do with myself. That's very tactful. Yeah. Um, I think it's the people. But anyway, uh, go ahead. Anyway, I have good friends that are yeah, engineers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so then I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with myself. Um, and I think I read actually in Scientific American um, um, a paper by um, Samir Zeki. And he, he was one of the people who actually found visual errors and what they do. For example, he discovered the visual errors that process visual motion, another area that might be involved in color processing. And they, he described how there's this very intricate structure in the brain, and that really kind of like, okay, I want to do that. So I started looking around where I could do that in Israel. I was in Israel at the time. Um, but how how long how 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 far along were you in your in your undergraduate career? Or graduate I finished career? my undergraduate so career. So you, you, first year you found it boring. You, you you persevered. You did it anyway. I did it anyway. Uh, I, I, yeah, I did it. And I so now it. you you're starting to get inspired by by these ideas when you're you just finished your undergraduate degree. Is this yeah, I finished my undergraduates. I was working, and then I was trying to figure out what I want to do with myself. Okay. So then I started taking uh, in Weizmann Institute of Science. I took some classes. You could just come and audit classes. Right. And then um, at that time, uh, there was a major discovery in the field by K.G. Tanaka, who discovered these columns for processing uh, um, object features. And I, came, I really did not know nothing. I really like. I was like. So what is what are these though? What are these columns? So basically, the brain has this organization that regions that uh, neurons that process similar uh, features are organized together and. Hubel and Weasel got a Nobel Prize in 1981 discovering the organization of the first primary visual cortex. And they found that it has this very nice organization that neurons that process similar features like orientation are organized in this columnar organization, where if you go perpendicular to the surface of the brain, they all have the same preference for the same orientation. But if you go parallel to it, you get a slowly changing preference for orientation. And for their discovery about the organization of V1, they got a Nobel Prize in 1981. And one of the things that is still a question in the field, how much is the general principle of organization? And the visual system is organized in a hierarchy, and these higher order areas of the hierarchy were pretty opaque to scientists. And one of the discoveries from Keiji Tanaka's lab is that these higher order areas also have the same kind of principles of organization. Okay. I want to get to that, yeah. but I I I, I, sh yeah. I cut you off. So so you were inspired by. So this. anyway, so I came and there was I didn't understand anything, but there was like the seminars there, and everybody got really really excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I got stung by their excitement, and I, I took these classes from a Shimon Ullman, who was doing computational vision, but he was really a lot of his computational vision was inspired by a brain and cognitive science. So I started going to these classes, and then I figured out this is what I want to do. So I, I did a master's in, in, in computer vision, and then I actually did a, com a PhD in neuroscience and computer vision. And my PhD advisor was Rafi Malach. So while I was doing my master's, he did a sabbatical at MGH, and he came back. He says, there's this new thing happening. We have to do it. <laughs> and, and so he came back from his sabbatical, and he gave a seminar, and everybody got really excited about it because he was one of the first people to actually do MRI in people at MGH in the time. And there wasn't just no MRI in Israel. So Rafi and I started doing that. So cool. This is what I did in PhD. That was very cool. Cool. So let's, start, let's talk about vision. Uh, so I won't have to keep cutting you off, yeah. although sadly I probably will anyway. Um, and, and let's sketch out uh, a brief history of what we know uh, uh, about 
human, very brief okay. history of what we know about human beings. So I'm some guy, again, from the perspective of somebody who says, okay, I understand that I see things, I have mental images of things, something's going on in the brain. What is, uh, what has been our understanding of the, of the vision process? I might, I might know something about an optic nerve somewhere and, and I might have heard of an occipital lobe or something like that, okay. and that's about it. Um, I hear you talk about V1, I hear you talk about vision systems, I hear, I don't know what any of these things mean. So give me some kind of uh, perspective of, of what the vision, what our current understanding of vision okay. is. So I'll try to do this 30 second version. No, you don't have to do a 30 second version. We have more than 30 seconds. See, this is long format stuff. This is okay. substance. This okay. is substantive stuff. Take as long as you need and we'll edit it down to 30 seconds. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> um, so vision is kind of intriguing because it's very effortless for us. So, you know, we have never met before. I hope you see me tomorrow. You still recognize me. <laughs> uh, people can recognize pictures, people from pictures like in a tenth of a second. So, um, so do you have any idea how many visual areas you might have in your brain? How many visual areas? Yeah. Um, well, you see, I would, I would ask you what you mean by visual area before I answer okay. that question. So no would be the short answer. Okay. So basically, let me ask you a different question. Okay. How much of your brain is devoted to just processing visual information? Okay. Um, so I'll tell you the little that I know, which is very, very little. Um, I've got, uh, I've got a, my, my brain, as I understand it, is broken into, what, four main lobes, four yeah. main regions? Yeah. So I've got my frontal lobe here, yep. and I've got my parietal lobe where up on top yep. here somewhere, and I've got my occipital lobe here, and I've got my temporal lobe here. Yeah, you got roughly. it right. Okay, so that's good. Um, and then uh, stuff comes into uh, through my optic nerve to the occipital lobe yep. here. Yeah. I didn't expect to be tested, but anyway, <laughs> I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going until you say no, and then we're going to edit all okay. that stuff out. Um, and and then, um, according to my latest reading, cursory reading, um, there are uh, current understanding, although I've been led to believe from your comments a few minutes ago that that's no longer current, but current understanding seems to be that there are three different processing streams of information. One, uh, basically, through neural activity, comes up here somewhere, yeah. and that's my dorsal guy, yeah. which has to do with... Um, uh, this is my my how and my where yeah. type of stuff, you, right? Spatial location planning, all the yes. rest of that. And then um, this this guy that comes whatever this way down into my temporal lobes yeah. is more the vision, what it is, and it's also yeah. tied to memory and recollection and all yes. that. So that's my understanding. Okay. So you're very good. Thank you. you very <laughs> good. You would have passed that question. The one where question in my uh, introduction to perception okay. class. You did well. Thank you. Uh, so the reason I'm asking is not to put you on the spot. Well, but, too late now because uh, you've already done it. It's because it, it looks like if you ask me like mathematics, how do I solve a mathematical problem? It's like clearly I need a brain, right? Because it's difficult. Right. I need a lot of brain power. It's uniquely human. It turns out that vision, it seems very effortless, but not because it's very simple. It actually requires a lot of machinery. Right. So this is why I asked you the question. So in the monkey brain, about 50% of the monkey brain, like a macaque's brain, is devoted to visual processing. In the human, about 30% of the human brain is probably just devoted to processing. 30%? Yeah. 
So that was all you wanted. You didn't yeah. want that whole long. You yeah. just wanted a percent. You wanted a yeah. number. You should have yeah. asked me for a number if you I wanted. I asked you the proportion. What proportion of your brain is devoted to vision? You did. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. We uh, have to edit anyway. all that anyway. So 30 percent is the number. That yeah, you that's want. the number. <laughs> okay. 30 okay. percent. And the way it's organized, it's not like a whole chunk is like just vision. It's organized into these smaller components that we call area. Right. And there's some criteria to make something in area. So um, anyway, I just want to give a sense of this because you asked how does vision work in the brain and why it might be interesting. It's interesting because a lot of the brain is involved in doing vision. And the reason that looks effortless for you is because there's a lot of machineries that works there for you without you having to consciously right. activate it, basically. Right. So and you know, um, People, like in the 70s, people started inventing computers, and then around the 70s and 80s, the AI lab formed at MIT, and they said, okay, now we have computers, vision is trivial. We're going to solve it very fast, because now we have the computer power. So this is MIT, everybody is a genius. Oh, what do they know? And yeah. so they gave it as a summer project <laughs> <laughs> to one of their, it's a true story. To one of their summer students, it's yeah. not been solved yet. No, no, it's a long summer. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not been solved. And that was 40 years ago. Yeah, I think that was somewhere in the 70s. So how does vision... It's not like a classic definition of hubris right there. I mean... Yeah, I, I wasn't there. It was yeah, before yeah. I was no, born. Uh, uh, but I actually wasn't sure if it's an urban story or a true story. It is a true story. Really? So there's do you know, an do you know the guy who was assigned? I don't remember, urban? but there's an AI memo on that Okay. in the MIT uh, archives. So... This is for me what makes it interesting because um, it's a very uh, concrete system. It's the goal is to see, and then within seeing, there are concrete goals that you might want to figure out. For example, recognize people. That's right. the what stream. Figure out where things are. That's the dorsal stream. Figuring out maybe how what are the actions or integrating with the other systems of the brain, like multisensory processing. That's the third stream. This is a lateral. Uh, and basically, our goal is to understand how information gets from the eye. This is where you get a photograph of the world. Right. It's actually upside down. Uh, mm. It goes to the optical nerve, to the occipital lobe, just as you described it. Mm. And then through a mysterious sequence of processing, you get this aha moment. It's like, oh, I recognize Howard. Mm. And this is what we're trying to figure out, the sequence of processing to this aha moment. Okay, so I want to ask you more details about that, yeah. obviously. But let's go back to these streams, because I'm, um, much as I'm sure I sound very knowledgeable and professorial, uh, this is all very superficial and very recently uh, uh, learned. Um, so when I'm reading about these different processing streams, I'm thinking, what's going on there? First of all, why is it that we have all this information that's happening in different geographical parts of the brain? That seems odd. I mean, if I... If I, want, if I were God and I wanted to build a brain, why would I necessarily build it that way? That sounds like a curious thing to do. Um, because if I want to, say if I, if I want to navigate through a room, right, then I have to recognize objects. I have to say, yeah, that's a chair, and yeah, that's this, and I have to rely upon my memory. And, and at the same time, I also have to be able to um, plan. I have to be able to avoid objects. And according to these stream things, those are two completely different things. And yet, when you're walking through a room, um, uh, and that's a pretty fairly common uh, thing to be doing, right? So that seems a, a, a tremendously complicated structure, and maybe it could go all wrong, maybe it could go haywire, but one stream could do this, one stream could do that. It doesn't seem to be the best suited way to, for evolution. 
Okay, so does that, does that make any sense? Is that, what you I'm asked saying? a very deep and uh, important question. So there are two um, underlying hypotheses about why there's like more than one area to begin with. Okay. Uh, right. Why not just stick with right. one area and that area does vision, right? Right. right. And then this idea of uh, parallel uh, streams and. One way to think about it is like from a systems engineering approach. Suppose you want to build an optimal system, um, what you want to have it do. So first of all, you want it to be rather fast because you have to react to a quickly changing environment. Right. So you have to make the system very efficient in terms of its processing speed. And second of all, you want to make it very robust. So the reason that, this is what people didn't under, uh, realize in the 70s. Why is vision difficult? This is like, this is why it, and this think, is why it was a summer project. Yes, was, because they didn't realize it was difficult, right? So why is it difficult? So the reason it's difficult is that even I see you now, I see you in five seconds later, something has changed. You moved your head, the lighting has changed, right. you you're you're in I'm in a different pose relative to you. So I'm never gonna get the same image on my retina, right. the same photograph of you. So you have to abstract somehow, you yeah. have to integrate, use your memory, do all yeah. this other stuff. This is one thing. Second thing, turns out the world is three D. Right. But the pictures that we get are actually 2D. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we actually really get two pictures. We have two eyes because they can integrate this information and get a 3D sense of the world. Right. So, um, so there's a lot of things that in order to get a visual system, not only needs to be fast, it needs to be robust. So right. it needs to be robust with all this variation and the visual input. So the idea of parallel stream is really that if you take a big and complicated problem and break it up to smaller problems and some of these things are independent from each other, you can get things going faster. So it's not that you, these streams are completely parallel. There's a lot of connections actually among these streams. Sure. But you could recognize me in this room and me outside, right? So recognizing me could be independent from where I am. So if one process figures out who I'm talking to and another process figures out where that person is, you can do that in parallel and get it done faster. Okay. So this is the idea of parallel processing. It helps with the efficiency. And what is the third stream again that you had mentioned? So this before? is a hypothesis still, but... Okay. Uh, well, so it's all hypothesis. Yeah. Generally, um, so the main streams have been found actually from uh, neuropsychological studies. So okay. basically what they did is that they saw that, and also from a lot of anatomy. So they saw, so uh, the whole occipital lobe and parts of the temporal and parietal lobes are made of smaller components called area. And each area actually has a representation of the visual world. And people knew how, from how an... Big, how big are these things? So these in humans are about a centimeter or two. So okay. the areas will be about half a centimeter, like on the surface area, to about... The biggest area's primary visual cortex is about three centimeters big. Okay. And these areas are interconnected to each other. And, and the physiologists and anatomists know which connections are ascending or go forward processing and which connections are descending or feedback processing because of how they connect inside the layers of the brain. Okay, so, for, so back up yeah. for one sec. So somebody who doesn't understand this, can you describe a little bit more what you mean by ascending and what you mean by Okay, so yeah, so the idea is that if you think about a stream and the stream is composed of components called areas, right? So what we have to figure out, one, how many areas you have in the stream, right? right. And then how does information gets relayed from one area to another area? So if you think about a very sequential system, it will go, let's say, V1 to V2. So V1 will be first visual area, V2 second visual area, then V3, then V4, and so on. It turns out that some of the information, that's called forward or ascending. 
it gets transmitted from a lower area to a higher area. So the, the information comes in to, to the brain, yeah. that I see something, and then it gets processed along the way by different areas. That's yeah, what you mean Yeah, that's a processing stream. Right. It turns out that there are also connections that are feedback connections, right. and these are what are descending connections, so a higher area and a hierarchy, which would be basically farther away from the occipital lobe anatomically, right. will send also back connections. And it, and it will send back a, a signal saying, saying what, you've moved too far to the left, or, or that thing is, no, you haven't moved because this is movement, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. We are still trying to figure this out. I don't know what signal is saying you back, but for example, Here's an example of a signal that might be sent back. It also okay. can be, and then there are also connections to the other lobes of the brain, right? Okay. So, for example, we're sitting here, and maybe um, in the context, you kind of just won't care if, like, if you're in a room or you're not in a room. But maybe in other kinds, you kind of care which kind of room you are. If in the kitchen right. or in the office, you might be doing different stuff. Right. So the idea of this top-down effect is that it, you might want to process different aspects of the vis visual scene in the context of what you're doing. And this is why you have these feedback connections to modulate the processing in right. the context of your task. Cool. Yeah. One other question I have before I move sure. to the, the, the specifics. Um, would it be possible that uh, an answer, another, maybe not an answer, but another justification for why you have these, these streams over different areas of the brain in terms of robustness is that if you get from an evolutionary perspective, mm -hmm. if, if everything was all concentrated in one area and I would get hit on the head in that one area, then I'd be, does that make any sense at all? Then I wouldn't be able to see anywhere. Is it, does, so you're is asking this any if there's sort of like, uh, uh, so you're asking if there's redundancy. Yeah, if, 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 that, if that sort of geograph, well. It doesn't really help you, no, so. No, I guess it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> so there is okay. some redundancy in the visual system. But that's a different thing. But that, if you, if you get a lesion in the parietal cortex, people who have stroke, for example, in the parietal cortex, they become like um, unaware of parts of their visual field. And that doesn't come back necessarily. Okay. Okay. If you get a lesion, uh, and we've studied patients like that in the temporal lobe. Right and they might become a prosopagnostic or a face blind if it hits certain parts of their region. So they can see the parts, they can see, they can, they're not blind, but then they cannot recognize okay. faces. So best, to, best to avoid these things. Basically. Don't get hurt in your yeah. brain, yes. <laughs> okay. so, so let me ask specifically about this processing stream and the yeah. way it can be modeled and the way it can be stimulated, simulated and yeah. more of your particular work. Yeah. Uh, you talk about how complicated that is and, and how subtle that is and how misunderstood that was, how people thought it was much more simplistic and didn't appreciate any of that. So what specific um, things have you done and are you working on to be able to model that process, these different processing streams and, and what's actually happening? At first we're actually just measuring them. So when I started doing uh, fMRI, my first experiment was in 1996. Um, at that point in time, we were basically working off a monkey model of the brain, and we were able to measure V1, V2, V3, V3A, and half of V4. Uh, so that's, and then uh, uh, Rafi Mala had discovered a region that's involved in object processing, that's lateral occipital cortex. People had discovered at that time a region for motion processing, MT. So people were just trying to actually map out the organization of the visual uh, system. So, so how do you so 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 my understanding again my uh, naive understanding is so there's V1s where the stuff happens and then it's moving along these various trajectories. So I'm hearing you say V1, V2, V3. Um, I'm guessing that there aren't 
if you look very carefully at my brain, you won't see a little V and a three and a V and a two. No. So you, you, somebody is saying this is the area and that's the yes. area. So how do you even decide which, where V1, what V, first of all, what it is and where it is? Okay. So uh, first, we don't always uh, agree on what we decide. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is where uh, science uh, becomes interesting. Um, so there's been a paper, uh, it's been a very famous paper in the field written by David Van Nessen, who kind of formulated it. And basically, you asked me what defines a visual area. Right. So there are four criterions for defining a visual area. One is um, its anatomical organization in terms of its cell makeup, how they're organized across layers of cortex, and different areas. Even the cortex is pretty uniform. The histology or the particular sizes of cells and how they're organized across a cortical sheet varies. Okay. So that's an anatomical marker. Okay. The second marker is the connections. If I'm V1, where do, I, do my accents send information to which areas? The third uh, criterion is function. Maybe I'm an area that's specialized for doing a particular computation. For example, you might, given a certain visual stimuli, you might want to extract what color it is separately from what's its identity and separately whether it's moving to your right or to your left. So there are these regions that are specialized for extracting particular kinds of visual information, maybe stereo depth information or right. motion information or color information or object shape information. The fourth feature of visual area is that it actually has a map of the visual field. It turns out there are a lot of little maps in our brain. I don't understand how you can how, how, I don't even know what that means, so tell me I, more I, about I will that. tell okay. you how. It's very simple. <laughs> so it, it turns out that your retina is kind of like a digital camera. Each point in this visual space actually gets mapped to a photoreceptor okay. in the retina. So basically, there's a one-to-one -one relationship between, because of the optics of the eye, between where something is in the world and where it hits the retina. Are these are these voxels then that you're talking about. These are actually photoreceptors. These are okay. in your eyes. That has right. nothing no, to no, do no, no, but I was extracting yeah, to them. Yeah, anyway, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Okay. Right. And it turns out that the way that the retina is connected to the brain, there's a one-to-one -one mapping right. between certain photoreceptors and certain locations in the cortex. So if I ask you to fixate in a part of like on, on some space, so I know exactly what part of the visual field gets projected in your retina. Yeah. There's an exact replica of that in your brain. That's a map. It's a map of the visual field. It's a one-to-one -one map. Cool. It's a little distorted. So the center of your visual field is bigger than you as a periphery of the visual field. Okay. And it has to do because you have more photoreceptors in the center of your gaze and the periphery. Okay, so from a photoreceptor perspective, it's a one-to-one -one map. Yeah. Cool. And the interesting thing is that you, you say, okay, so I have a map of the world in V1, I'm done. This map where it gets replicated. So V2 also has a map of the world. And V3 has a map of the world. And V4 has a map of the world. And this is what we can do very well with the functional imaging. Have subjects stare at dot and project play, stimuli, visual stimuli in different locations of visual field and map it to the brain. Hmm. And um, it takes about five minutes to do that. So, so what's going on when it's... When 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 this when these maps are being replicated, I mean, why why do you think they're being replicated in the first? Is this is this so that? Well, I won't try to speculate. Why? why okay, why so basically, what happens? So we're talking about this processing hierarchy. Right. So it turns out that your photoreceptors are very very small. They right. really each photoreceptor sees like really a tiny dot right. in the world, and this. This is the idea, what's called in visual science, this idea of a receptive field. What part of visual space gets activated 
in each in neuron, so each neuron codes a particular part of visual space. Okay. And what happens is that in, across the hierarchies, the early visual areas, each, each neuron really sees a tiny portion of visual space. So when we're talking about yourself moving in the scene, a neuron in your V1 doesn't see the whole scene. It just like sees a tiny portion of the scene, like through a, like you're looking through a door, you know, a keyhole. Right, that's this one-to-one -one map. Thing yeah, yeah. Right. And as you ascend the hierarchy, um, the receptive fields become bigger till as at the higher end of the hierarchies, they become big, so they see like whole objects hmm. or parts of scene. So, but to keep track, I think, of where information is coming from, having things mapped in a consistent way is a really very efficient way of organizing the information in a very systematic way. I see. And how, how is this linked, uh, understood that we don't have a full theory yeah. and so forth, but how, how is this linked to memory? Because presumably, if I see an object and I form uh, a, a, an image of the object, mm -hmm. so all four of these things, so we focus on the map, but yeah. you were talking about all yeah. four of the different things that were going on yeah. in the different areas. So in the different areas, as I'm processing this information, at some point, presumably, I'm going to say, as you said, oh, there's, uh, there's Kalanid, I've seen her mm -hmm. before, or there's this chair, I know what a chair looks like. So I'm doing something other than just uh, uh, being, being a sheet on which stimuli is being inputted. I'm somehow recollecting it to something else. Yeah. How is that working? What's going on so there? So these are the memory systems. Um, are, there are multiple memory systems in the brain, and some of them are tied visual cortex. So um, for example, you could have implicit memories. Uh, you could just, and then you could have like various degrees of memory. So you could say, oh, I've seen this person before, he looks familiar to me. Or you could have an explicit memory that you know who that person is for, for recognition. Right. Or you could have a more elaborate memory, memories like, oh, I met this, this and this on that day and it was raining and stuff like that. What a nightmare. What a hard field you have. Uh, <laughs> Memory is hard enough. I no, mean. so anyway, so we don't deal with that kind of memory. Okay. We only deal Smart. with the memories that's like, if I need to recognize a cat. Yeah. Okay. I need to have like some knowledge about what a cat is. Right. How can I take a picture? Philosophers I, have been arguing about what a cat is for a long time, but anyway, I'll. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, if I show you a picture of a cat, yeah. and maybe you have a two-year-old uh, in your house, probably a two-year-old will be able to say this is a cat. Yeah. So all the information. If, if, if she's not a philosopher. If yeah. she's not a philosopher. <laughs> but the idea is how do you, and this is the kind of stuff that interests me. Yeah. How you get like a static picture of something and you can recognize what it is. Right. Um, and these kinds of memory are probably more visual in nature. Yeah. And they don't really require all this maybe semantic knowledge about what a cat likes to eat and did I see a cat yesterday or right. something. So I'm right. not going to deal with all these other sure. memories. Yeah. Okay. But so how does so? So but, but, but back to the processing stream. Right. Sorry. I okay. So the idea is a processing stream. As at, first of all, as you go up the series of processing, first you process information over bigger extents of visual space. Right. And second of all, the processing becomes more elaborate. What do I mean by that? That in early stages, um, the neurons process like local information, like about changes in contrast or luminance or like little orientations. And as you go up the hierarchy, the neurons process more um, elaborate information, like the shape of things. Um, so you don't you don't process that in the beginning. So your V one no. or V two doesn't even doesn't shape doesn't even kick in. Well, it's. Some features do kick in, like orientation or okay. contrast, but these are all done locally. Okay. 
So say, you asked, why do I need a processing stream? So one of the ideas of a processing stream is that from one stage to another, uh, there's different kind of transformations. So at the end of the processing stream, you get something that would be useful for the goal of your computation. So at the V1 is the input to all kinds of visual processing, whether you want to extract motion information or where something is or what it is. So it needs to give some content that would be used sure. for everything. But sure. as you go up in the hierarchy, you're, you're picking. Yeah, you're, you become more specialized, right. and you're organizing information that's particularly useful for the computation that you want to do. So the information that you might need for recognizing something is different than if you want to figure out where something is moving to. And you and you can you can get some experimental evidence for this because when you're doing your experiments with people in the fMRI machine. You're, uh, they're responding to specific questions or ideas or, or, or thoughts about they're focusing on shape or they're focusing on, on, on uh, movement or they're focusing on, on, on one of these specific areas and then you see different areas of the brain being activated. Is that, yeah. is that right? That's so let me describe a very simple experiment. Please. Suppose you want to figure out, you've, you read this, uh, this study by this very uh, eminent neuroscience, Bill Newsom, and he, he studies this region, neurons in this region called MT, and neurons in these regions uh, respond when stimuli move more when they don't move, so their firing rate increase. So say, yeah. oh, how, how could I find this region in a person's brain? What would I do? So you find a volunteer subject, right. and you create a, a very simple experiment. You make, um, you take a bunch of dots, yeah. and you just show them still, like for let's say ten seconds, or you take the same bunch of dots and start moving them around. Then you, you're a scientist, so you're going to repeat stuff. So right. you show them still again <laughs> and moving again. Still moving. It does it six times. It takes you three and a half minutes. Then you take your uh, fMRI data, take it to your computer, and um, then uh, say which part of the, you have all the voxels of that I've recorded right now, which voxels show higher signals when the dots moved right. compared to when they didn't move. And then you get this... Uh, several clusters of activation and you say, okay, this one is in this anatomical region, this is where it's supposed to be, this is how I did it. So it took you three and a half minutes and you found the answer to that question. Wow. And of course you do this, not only repeating it with that, uh, that one particular uh, volunteer, but you do this over and yeah. over and over again with a wide yeah. variety. And do you find, is there, is there any variety in terms of where these, where these things are Actually. from person to person? Please do. Sure. This wasn't set up. This was a legitimate question. No, no, question. no, 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 no. no. <laughs> Let me connect to my computer. Let me show you some yes. how brains look like. So, of course, you can do this experiment also. Let's say you want another experiment. Which part of the brain process shapes? So you make, like, you right. take these random shapes, and then you're just going to blow them up into pieces and see which parts respond more to shapes than right. other things. Right. Um, or if you think that there are areas in the brain that might specialize for recognizing faces because they're uh, uh, you know, evolutionary important, you might show people pictures of faces compared to pictures of objects and show me any areas in the brain that might respond more strong for faces and objects. Oh, you know what? What happens when you do that, by the way? That I'll show one. you. Oh, all right. <laughs> uh, You've got all that stuff on there. So you were, you were very clever. You were asking all these questions that you already knew the answers to. No, no. <laughs> if, I, I, if I would know all the answers, well, I wouldn't answers, do right. science. Sure, sure. 
Yes, there's this wonderful This quote. is called a hypothesis. We hypothesize that there might be a region of the brain that's specialized. And then we, okay. Right. There's this wonderful quote by Einstein, or at least has been attributed to Einstein, um, like so many others, which is that if we knew what we were doing, we wouldn't call it research. And that's probably true. So this is my computer upstairs. Uh, this is a brain of one of my students. And, and my students was in the scanner longer. Uh, well, well, then, of course, you can five make minutes. Sure. Well, it's your student. You can, you can make the student be no, in the I scanner for make, hours. No, I cannot. <laughs> he has to volunteer. He's the only reason it's motivated because it's his PhD. Um, this is a, his right hemisphere. So I'm showing you, this is what I explained to you, how we can, we can reconstruct the cortical surface. Right. And you can see it's wrinkled. Because it is it, very wrinkled, yeah. It, well, it's not just your student, right? That's, no, this is a, the brain is always, always wrinkled, but it's hard to see stuff because a cortical sheet is about three millimeters thick. So we, we just show stuff at the boundary between the gray matter and the white matter, so it looks more wrinkled than it actually is. And the stuff that's inside the valleys is in darker gray. Mm -hmm. And stuff, this is called sulci, and the stuff that's on the hills is in lighter gray. Okay. And I want to show you where is the, so basically, back to your question, I asked you how much of the brain is visual. Okay. So the, question, is, the question, that was only looking for a number that it yeah. took me 10 minutes to, yeah. Yeah, anyway, this is the occipital lobe. Yeah. Okay. And each color here is a different brain area. And then I just put a bunch of brain areas in his brain, and each color is, again, just something that responds to some aspect of the visual stimulus. And you can see already that's probably more than two dozen in his brain. So they'll be in the occipital lobe. I haven't mapped all areas in the occipital lobe. Mm -hmm. They'll be in the parietal lobe. This is over here. Mm -hmm. And what my lab studies mostly is this temporal lobe. This is stuff on the inferior or bottom part of the brain. And basically, the way I can assign different colors to different parts of the brain is because we do a fMRI experiment. Some of the experiment, we actually map the visual field. Like I explained to you, we ask the subject to fixate, and we flash them in different locations. Mm -hmm. And many areas, there are more than two dozen areas, actually, that have a representation of the visual field. So in one experiment, wow. it takes me usually about 20 minutes to get a really nice looking map. I can map like about 18 areas. So. This would be V1. This is where information from the eyes gets here. Yeah. It's, and so, yes, this is always in the same place in everybody. Okay. Turns out that the V1 is always in the sulcus. It's the same sulcus in everybody. It's called the calcarin. So even if I didn't do fMRI, just from the anatomy, I can make a really good guess right. where it is. Right. However, the higher order areas are, you. it's unclear how well you can guess them just from anatomy alone. And this is why, as a field, we started to do functional imaging. Because right. you asked me, so how much is this brain representative of anybody's brain? So the calcarin is going to be in everybody's brain. But how long it is, how deep it is, how many convolution it is, has will vary a little bit. Really? But, yeah. And, and are, there, are there any correlations between, I don't know, uh, gender, age, uh, interest in NBA basketball are there <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that you found? It's unclear, and um, recently people have a big connectome project that they were scanning like 1,000 people. And uh, one of our colleagues from WashU, his name is David Vanessen, he said that he took twin brains and he thought he could recognize them by their anatomy, and it's not that obvious. Twins? Yeah. Wow. So, That's hard. However, yeah. one of the things that our lab has discovered is that people really thought that it's only the anatomy can only predict the early sensory region. So just like because... They're connected to the peripheral nervous system. You know how it's wired, right? So it always have to be in the same anatomical location. And people thought that all these higher order areas are kind of very variable between 
uh, people. And uh, in the research I've done, and mainly with uh, one of my students, Kevin Weiner, we actually start measuring more and more people's brain. And um, we found out that the anatomy is much more predictable of function than you would think, even in these very high order areas that are supposed to be even molded by experience and so on. So we've become better uh, at actually predicting from anatomy where functions are. Right. And for example, this is what happens like, um, I'm trying to get this at the bottom of the brain. Yeah. Just hold on one second. Are we, are we making sure that Kalanid is actually in frame because she's moving a little bit? Well, I figure for this we'll, we'll have the images no, but might as well just make sure yeah, anyway. Yeah. Because... Do you want me to? No, 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 no. I just, you should, you just be you. You just be you. I, I, I just, uh, okay. uh, For example, um, you asked how much we know about anatomy. So uh, Kevin uh, started paying attention that there, this is the bottom of the brain. There's, a, there's this gyrus. It's like a hill. Um, but in the hill, there's just a little valley. Um, it's, it's called a sulcus, a mid-physiform sulcus, and it's actually not in any of the anatomy textbooks. So if you take an anatomy textbook, it's not really? there. It's not documented. But having large databases, so we, you know, Kevin and I stared at 158 hemispheres, and after seeing it over and over again in everybody's brain, we understood it, it really exists. Have you, have you told these anatomy guys? Like, are the new textbooks at least going to have it in it? Are they going to have it in it? <laughs> he went actually. Kevin went back. Uh, he he has a he likes to look at history of science. He actually went in Stanford. There's a library that has all archives, and they have these anatomy books from the 1800s, right. and they're written in German. Sure. And I don't think he knows German, but he has a Google Translate, uh, and it's a very annoying to read them because one book has the pictures and what like the plates of the brain, right. and one book has the um, the description, so it's, it's really annoying to read them. But one of the things, because he, he was really bothered saying, like, why it's not in the books? Yeah. He's like, maybe they didn't see it. So what had happened is that if you look at the original brain, it's there. But when people had drawn the schema, because it's a small sulcus, and they had just one example, it's like, I know the big sulci are going to be present in everybody, but I don't know how much a small sulcus is idiosyncratic of this brain right. or not. So one of the advantages of doing neuroimaging and it's not invasive, and you scan a lot of people, but you get a lot of data. And if cool. you start seeing something over and over again, it's in every single subject, and you can start quantify how much it's variable and how much it's not, then you can get, start making sense out of it. So that's really interesting because I didn't, I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know two things about one in this particular area. Okay. Um, one is I, I didn't know how much variation there was. According to what you're saying, there's, a tr there's basically a tremendous amount of variation in terms of the, uh, the, the particularities of the, of the sulci and the folding and so forth. But then there are some that, uh, they're the big ones, of course, that everybody has. So there's, a, correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is there's, yeah, there's a lot of local variation, uh, but then there are, there are some things that are, are very constant, getting back to your five fingers yeah. in the hand. And, and, and there has been a lack of attention paid or lack of awareness, perhaps, to some of the smaller ones that actually are constant throughout all humans. Is that, is that a fair, yeah, fair yeah. summary? So, yes. So basically, the general organization and topology is going to be present in everybody's brain. So that basically, for example, everybody will have sure, the regions the, the region and, and stuff like right, that right. and the main cell site. The, there's particular characteristic is what varies across subjects. So sometimes a sulcus will have two branches, or sometimes will have one branch. 
And this is like the kind of variability, or sometimes it'll be very long and very deep, and sometimes it'll be shorter. So when you look at the brain, you have to kind of like train yourself to, to recognize the same features despite this variability. Right. And what you said was very accurate, so the kind of work that's happening in my lab, and as well as other labs, is if you actually start to characterize this variability, uh, then you can start seeing the regularities. And once you start seeing the regularities, you can start making new inferences that you haven't been able to see before. And um, anyway, so this so, yeah. so this region that you found uh, that yeah. had some uh, Latin name that I couldn't remember. Um, yes. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's called, OK, the fuzzy form is a Latin name. It's the name of a gyrus. It looks like a spindle. And spindle is what fuzzy form means in Latin, I believe. Okay, so this particular spindle? Yeah, so we, those are the sulcus we haven't found. Like everybody sees that it's a big, it's a fusiform gyrus is a very big structure. What we found is like, is think about like you have a little mountain and then you have a little ridge in the middle of the right. peak. And what we found is like this hidden valley, basically. Okay, so the hidden valley yeah. that you yeah. found, uh, which is very easy for me to remember, yeah. um, that, that everybody has yes. and that has not been sufficiently uh, appreciated as, as yeah. a universal characteristic yes. of the human mind or yeah. brain. Uh, yeah. is uh, presumably, since it is universal, that would be suggestive of the fact that there's some central common processing going on there, right? Is that, yes. Is okay, so we found two things about it. This is what makes it interesting. One thing is that um, you see these like uh, red splotches here on the brain. Yeah, uh, there's a maroon guy and a yeah, red guy. Yeah, so all these red patches are regions yeah. of the brain that respond more strongly when you see people's faces compared to other visual stimuli. Okay. It turns out that everybody has them. So um, there's some dedicated hardware in your brain that seems to be involved in processing faces. And, and this is a discovery made by Nancy Kenwisher in 1996. Um, 1997, actually, her paper. Uh, initially, she thought there's just one of them. She said there's like a, a, a module in the brain, she described it like a blueberry-sized module in the brain that all it does is process faces. That's 1997. So she was the first person to discover this was fMRI. What we've found over time since 97 today was our methods getting better is that there are multiple of them. Hmm. And, and then, but they're organized in a very systematic way. And what we've recently found is that there's actually very predictable by anatomy. So they happen in every person's brain in the same part of their brain. So if I find this little sulcus here, you always find this face selective region on this uh, sulcus. And the reason that it's interesting is that we started another collaboration with people uh, who look at the um, histologies, the anatomy makeup of the brain. You cannot do it in a living subject because you have to do it on slices of the brain no. under the microscope. So they have postmortem brains. And, what, and they have discovered different regions that have different hardware. Hmm. And then you said, well, maybe if there's specialization for face processing, maybe it will require a very dedicated hardware that's optimized for doing this kind of computations. And what we looked at their data, so we cannot map function to their data, right? right. Because they have postmortem brains. It turns out that the location where they find the specialized hardware is very, very aligned with this anatomical huh. dimple or, uh, that we found. Right. So this lets us start thinking about how some dedicated hardware might lead to some specific processing that's relevant to our perception. So we're, we're still 
you know, figuring our way there, but this is kind of our plan. Do you have, um, so I'm, I'm thinking as you're talking about this mm -hmm. of Oliver Sacks type of people, right? So there mm -hmm. must be some people out there who can't recognize faces or have problems or they don't yeah. remember or whatever. So uh, presumably, you, uh, well, maybe not presumably, but I can imagine that you might have subjects who have, uh, for whatever reason, have difficulties with facial recognition that you can then put in one of these, uh, one of these scanners and and, um, and and maybe see some anomalies that don't match up to those regions or, and or the hardware aspect that you're just talking about now. So um, these people are called prosopagnostic. They have face right, blindness. Right. Um, sometimes it's because they're missing a part of the brain because of some brain injury. Um, and we have some uh, collaborations on that. Um, and sometimes these are people that don't have any atypicalities in their brain, but they're still very poor at recognizing faces. And we've just started looking at that. Um, it looks like they do have these regions, but they're smaller. Um, but I haven't looked at enough people to be able to really tell you what's different about the brain. It's not very obvious. Okay. How many of them are there, by the way? I mean, how? Um, there's a study. There are two studies. Uh, one study is from Kenna Kayam and Brad Duchesne. And one study is from a group in Germany that studied a village of 700 people. And the estimation is about 2% of the population is really bad. 2%? That yeah. seems pretty high to me. It's high. Is there something going on in this village in Germany that... Uh... Yeah, out of the 700 people, like 2% wow. were really bad. Um, so these people exist. Um, they certainly exist in that village, I'll tell you uh, that. They exist in the world. <laughs> they exist in the world, uh, and we're, we're not there yet. I'm still trying to figure out most of the time what happens in typical people. Sure. Okay. Sure. So the other thing that I want to show you is, uh, I'll show it to you now. So um, most of the part of the time, we're doing non-invasive measurements in typical people. Uh, once in a while, we have the opportunity to actually record directly from the surface of the brain. Um, and this happens for subjects who get evaluated for surgery for epilepsy. So this is an epilepsy clinic here at Stanford. Mm -hmm. um, the neurologist is Dr. Parvizi. And these patients basically have intractable epilepsy. It doesn't, isn't treated with, with medication. And basically what the doctors try to evaluate where the seizure starts and if they can just resect that little part of the brain, it usually uh, helps them with their epilepsy. So they come to Stanford for about a week, and they have, they have a, a, electrodes implanted on the surface of the brain for a week. Mm -hmm. And they're just basically sitting there waiting for a seizure to happen so the doctors can track where the seizure is. And sometimes they get bored, and sometimes we get to show them stuff and actually record uh, their uh, areas from the brain. One of these subjects, we actually did an fMRI before he went into surgery, so we were able to map uh, these face-selective regions in his brain. Now, part of the medical procedure for epilepsy is to put electrical current uh, through these electrodes to see if it disrupts brain activity. And the reason is that uh, you don't want the surgery to remove some vital piece of cortex. Uh, so if that vital piece of cortex is going to make you unable to see faces, sure. they're not going to do a surgery. Sure. So this, uh, I'm, so what I will show you uh, is this subject that we ran here, and we were able to map these two face selective regions on the fusiform. Mm -hmm. And then you'll see what happens uh, when the, um, he's looking at the doctor's face, 
And in some trials, it's the, he gets current injected, and then we'll see how much current it is. In some trials, the doctor does everything the same, but there's no current. It's a sham trial. So this is just as so a subject won't guess right. that he needs to say something. It's a control measure. Yeah. So let me show you this. So this is a, is a patient. His name is Ron Blackwell. Is, this is his brain, so this is kind of the MRI like I showed you before, and the regions in orange are the regions that respond more strongly to faces than not to faces. Now, when the surgeon puts the electrode grids, he actually doesn't have access to our MRIs, and he actually doesn't see the surface of the cortex, so he just slips these electrodes mm -hmm. under without actually seeing. And he had, he had about maybe, maybe a, I don't know, a dozen electrodes here on the ventral surface. And we're just lucky, it's just really lucky, that two of these electrodes are really on the center of these two face elective regions. Because uh, these electrodes are spaced about a centimeter apart. Oh, really? So it's yeah. a complete fluke. It's just a complete fluke, huh. yes. So, and then you, you could say, well, we know that in typical people, they show higher responses to faces and other stimuli, but are they causally involved in processing faces? So fMRI is all correlational, right? Right. So this gives us a unique window about uh, their causal involvement, because you can think that if you disrupt, if you disrupt their normal activity by injecting current, the question is, will it create a specific deficit, mm -hmm. or will it create a general deficit, right? Maybe it will affect their face perception and other stuff. Right. You could also ask, what if I, I, we had electrodes over here, what if you uh, inject currents so. there, will it affect their face right. perception? Right. So what I want to show you here um, is what happens when he gets stimulated on these electrodes. And basically, the doctor is asking him, is Dr. Pervizi is asking him to look at his face, while he's doing all this. And I think it begins with a sham, which is no electrical current, mm -hmm. and then there are two trials where he's actually stimulating him. Oh, so you get a lot of data then, because you get the... the... We cannot, we have, we have, uh, yeah, we have some data, but we cannot go, like, do this a hundred times. No, 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 sure. Uh, well, uh, I'm not an experimentalist, so a lot is one for me. So. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, if you're an experimentalist, like, one is like, maybe it's by chance. Like, let's do it again. <laughs> Okay, maybe it's the second time I test. Let's do it again. This is how my mind works. Anyway. And tell me what happens when I do this. All right? One, two, three. Nothing. Okay? I'm going to do it one more time. Look at my face. One, two. There's current now. Three. You just turned into somebody else. Your face metamorphosed. Your nose got saggy, went to the left. Holy smokes. You almost looked like somebody I'd seen before, but somebody different. That was a trip. See, that's a big data point. I mean, yeah. you, that's one, but it's a big one. I could see your eyes, but I, you could have been somebody else who had, well, he has similar eyes to Dr. Parvizi, but you were someone else. Your whole face just sort of metamorphosed. Metamorphosed. It is. It worked? Yes. Did it, uh, did it uh, keep its own features? No, it's or almost shape. like your, the shape of your face, your features drooped. Yeah. Sort of like they drooped to a particular direction, kind of stretched and drooped. So we repeat the experiment. Right. Ready? One, two, three. 
Yeah, it metamorphosed again, and you look like someone I've seen before, but maybe a different person in my memory. Almost like uh, your, your nose kind of shifted to the left a little bit, and your look just changed. It did. So the strength of the current was a little different there, yes, right? Yeah, a little was, bit lower. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't yeah. have a photographic memory, but it just, you turned into someone else. You started to look, you look like someone else. Did I keep my gender? Yeah. Oh, yeah. How did you know I'm not a female? Because you're still wearing a suit and tie. Oh, you could see the suit and tie? Yeah. Only your face changed. Everything else wow. was the same. Wow. Holy smokes. Did the skin color remain the same? Yes. Did the position of my lips and nose and eyes stay the same when they got warped? They shifted. Let's say they shifted to a side and maybe stretched, but they didn't get larger or smaller. Okay. It, was, it was more of a perception, how I perceived your face. Interesting. Tell yeah. me more. That's, that's about all I can say. It just, all of a sudden you were you, and then you weren't you. You could have been staying, someone else who was standing there in front Okay, so I have a question. So this guy's still here, right? You've kept him and have this, this, I mean, you've probably done like 10 million experiments with this guy. I would never let this guy go. I mean, if, if I were you, I would say, this is my golden page. He's all wired up. He's ready to go. But just, this, well, guy's, he, this guy's living here. He's moving. Well, it, it, no, no. You have to understand. He was only with his electrodes on, in a, uh, for one week. Yeah, well, that's a okay, shame. Okay, yeah. I mean, for science. Yeah, uh, no. So he has a life. He has daughters. Life, yeah. daughters. Come on. I mean, this is, think, think of what this guy's done. I mean, this is remarkable. It's, this is remarkable, but you're not allowed to do this uh, unless you have a good reason, right? Because sure. this is an invasive measurement. Sure. And um, basically, even if I volunteer, I go to my IRB and say, I really have to measure this neuron in my brain. Let me just do it. Like, I don't care. It's like, no, they won't let you do no, it. No, but, 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 but hang on. And obviously, yeah. this is not something you haven't um, um, thought of. And... Um, but the, you, you said this is this is a treatment for epilepsy. It's not a treatment. It's an evaluation for evaluation. surgery. Sorry. We're not treating him. And they do the stimulations a day before the surgery. So we did the stimulation the very last thing. Okay, I understand that. Yeah. But there must be other people in this gentleman's, yeah. in all seriousness, yeah. right? There must be other people in this gentleman's position uh, who are submitting themselves to this terribly invasive procedure yeah. for other completely justified medical reasons. Um, that you can now deliberately, or at least try a little bit harder, deliberately to do the sorts of things that happened uh, somewhat by fluke yeah. here. So basically, here's what we can do, and here's what we cannot do. Okay. So the decision of where to put the electrode is, all, is completely determined by the surgeon mm -hmm. and the neurologist. So we have no say absolutely. You no, know, talk to these people. Come on. I mean, this is America. You can bring out a gun or something. No, I mean, no, no, no. This is could... not ethical. Is it, the only way, this is really, this is serious. They, the they're coming here for getting treatment. They volunteer to do the research, but the first priority sure. is to get them healthy. No, 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 I understand. So, that. so basically, um, the doctor has to determine based on the clinical evaluation where to put electrodes. I cannot say, well, if you're putting electrodes in somebody's brain, I really want you to put electrodes in this part of the brain. But what's his, what so, is his decision procedure for putting electrodes? Okay, How does he do that? So basically, there are different kinds of epilepsy, yeah. and they have first scalp. EG done on these uh, right. patients, right. and depending on where they think the, the epilepsy starts, 
is they'll put electrodes. These patients that we see, typically the hypothesis is that they have epilepsy in the temporal lobe, and this is why they get strips there in the temporal lobe. But if the doctor thinks that it's going to be anterior in the temporal lobe, he's going to put the electrodes in the anterior temporal lobe, and they're not going to be able to measure stuff in my favorite neck uh, of, of the course, words. Of course, no, no, no. I mean, and I was being facetious, yeah. as I'm sure you appreciate, yeah. but there must be uh, and, and again, I'm not... I'm sorry, I'm just very sensitive about this. And, and, okay, but I, yeah. okay, so I, I should have known in advance. Yeah. But there, there must be a case where you have a completely ethical map, where you, which is a one-to-one correlation, which is to say that uh, individuals are coming in for this yes. terrible procedure, they're suffering from... from the, the, yeah. they, they need to be diagnosed. Yeah. Um, and the, the clinicians, the, the medical staff, have evaluated that... that there is a match in the part of the brain that they think would be most helpful yes. uh, for the diagnostic process that overlaps with yours. And yeah. so there's a region where they don't really care within that region, whether it's here, there, yeah. everywhere. And then you can say, well, since it, you don't really care, why don't we try to... So if there's a situation like this, they'll call me up and okay. say, we have a pay... So basically, a lot of patients come, not everybody wants to be part of research. Sure. So... First, like some of these patients will come and will never do participate sure. in research. Sure. Once in a while, a patient will come and participate uh, in research. And if that patient, you know, I'm collaborating with Parvizi, who is a, a neurologist, and if he thinks that there is a patient that might be interested in research and there might be electrodes in my neck of the brain, basically, he'll call me and say, you know, um, Let's do some experiments. The MRI can do before or after because mm -hmm. they cannot do it when there are electrodes in the brain anyway. Sure. And we've brought in patients here. They usually are very motivated and they participate. It's fine. So, and we've done that. So, and it really depends on the patients. There could be a whole year that we don't see anybody, and there could be a month where we'll see three people. Sure. So we've seen about six people right now like this. And with Parvizi, we're running a collaboration to see, you know. This is going to be always the case that we get lucky and there are electrodes in this place and we always get the same kind of phenomena. Maybe there are differences between hemispheres. Right. And this is, so basically, there are going to be more opportunities, and, but we have to place them by the ear of because course. it depends on like which patients end up here. Of course. Yeah. So, so let me back up and, 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 and talk about what this means. Yes. So, uh, so there are some regions um, that were hypothesized as being uh, critical for facial recognition. Yes. They were stimulated, um, and, and there, there was clearly, a, there seemed to clearly be on these two data points, which is enough for me, yeah. but I'm not an experimentalist. No, there, these there, are very strong data, but... There was suge very yeah. suggestive evidence yes. that having stimulated these areas, there was a, a strong causal link yes. to, uh, to our... Uh, how would you say it? Facial recognition process or, or perception. perception. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, what what sorts of things might we be able to conclude from that, or do from that, or build upon that? Um, the 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 most important thing that you want to know is about if there's some dedicated hardware that seems to be right. uh, for a particular kind of processing, and this shows very strong evidence towards the existence of such a hardware because. As I told you, with fMRI, I can scan a person many, many times, and I can show what kind of stimuli will increase activation. For example, we've run experiments when we show pictures in a flash of a second. Sometimes they can see it, and sometimes they can't. And we show that these regions respond more strongly when there's a picture and you see it, and don't respond at the same intensity when there's a picture and you don't see it. So we've shown hmm. 
in a correlative way that the activation in the region predicts what subject perceive, but we were never able to show directly is that it's necessary or sufficient, right? right. So these kind of experiments are very critical sure. because it shows that if you perturb them, it really affects your perception. Right. And, and, and moreover, you, you show, you can't prove, but you, you have data points, lots yes. of them, yeah. of places where they have been perturbed, where nothing happens yes. when you're outside of... Yeah, of, of so there are two things that I haven't shown you, but there are two additional things that we did. We also stimulated this when he had in his room a bunch of objects. He one of the things that had, a, let's say, a get well balloon, mm -hmm. and that requires reading. It requires like fine visual acuity, and you can stimulate these electrodes, and he's fine reading them. So it's like it's not anything that you stimulate will will cause a visual distortion. We also stimulated the regions here more medially that seem to selectively uh, respond to places and scenes more to objects and faces, and we had two electrodes over these regions as well. But when you stimulated them, he didn't get any kind of uh, visual distortion, actually. Not a faces or not a something else. So that really, that, that we have enough data point to be very clear about this uh, person that there's very specific uh, brain tissues that's involved in a very specific function. And this is what's cool about it. That whole thing about he could see the suit and the tie, and yeah. that, that, was, that was just remarkable. That yeah. it was so incredibly specific. It was just the face, everything. I knew the gender, I knew the suit. That was really remarkable. And cool. so this is, this is great evidence for specialization in the visual systems. That there might be dedicated hardware for particular processing. Right. And you might ask yourself, why? So probably because it's been evolutionarily important mm. to recognize uh, faces as a species. We're a social group, right? Sure. So. Um, and also, there are some kind of stuff that you are probably going to do on faces that you couldn't care about chairs, for example. Gender is not something that you care about. Right. Age, you care about faces, like social stature and sure. stuff like that. So sure. there's a lot of reasons evolutionarily why we might get this dedicated software and why it would be important to do it fast. Wow. Let me, let me ask you a little bit. Let me talk a little bit and talk about the plasticity of the brain. Okay. And ask you what... Uh, we've talked about localization, local regions, yeah. uh, local regions in a processing stream. But if I'm some guy uh, going through Scientific American or whatever, and I, 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 I've heard all this talk about how the brain can change, how the brain can be plastic, how, how we're not fixed into a particular... There's some localization, clearly, but it's not as if neurons are always doing exactly the same sorts of things all the time and so forth. How does the notion of plasticity of the brain um, fit in with your particular perspectives and 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 what are, are are you are you consciously thinking about that as you move forwards with developing these particular models and understanding of them so we're actually thinking about plasticity a lot in multiple uh, domains um, one domain is actually in the domain of face recognition you constantly learn new faces throughout your lifespan. So there has to be some ways that you have to constantly update your day-to-day -day experience and update your representation of faces. Right. So, um, so, and we know that these can modulate brain responses. For example, if I show a subject the same picture over and over again, I get a, a decreased brain response because the first picture was new, mm -hmm. and then by repeating the same picture, uh, you get a decreased race response because the brain is updating. It's like, oh, I've seen yeah, it, I've yeah, seen yeah, it, I've yeah, seen yeah, it. Right. So that's one, it's kind of a plasticity, but it's like short-term plasticity. Right. Okay? Right. And it doesn't really involve changing of these regions. Sure. 
but they do change over time. Other kind of plasticity that we are looking at in my lab specifically is plasticity over the lifespan. And specifically, we're really interested in how high-level visual areas develop from childhood. We studied from like seven-year-olds right. all the way to adulthood. And what we found is that in children, the general topology, the layout of these regions is very similar to adults. So it's kind of like mm. they have the same kind of terrain, right. but it gets more chiseled with experience. Right. So basically, what happens as kids is that they have the same regions, but they're smaller, and they're less selective. And one of the things that we found is that in adults, you get like differentiated responses for adult faces and kids' faces in these regions. But in kids, it's like they have one category of faces, not that differentiated among hmm. kids' faces and adult faces. So basically, again, experience can mold your re representations. And you, as you become more expert and you, maybe you're becoming more interested in your own group, you get more distinct uh, representation. Um, so the third kind of plasticity that we're measuring, and then I'll let you ask a question, is what might happen uh, because of, let's say, brain damage. So suppose you had, let's say, a stroke here. Right. Or maybe a stroke here in this uh, occipital area. Will it affect downstream areas? Will they get reorganized because now they get an lacking an input from an earlier area? Right. So these are three kinds of plasticities that we're looking into. And what, what have you, have you had a chance to theorize or find any data with the, with the third kind in terms of restructuring? Do you have any? We're starting to look into You're that. You're just starting to look into it. Um, I was going to ask with the, with the second kind, I'm trying to imagine somebody who uh, has a, an, an overwhelming necessity of being able to rely upon facial recognition. Someone in their job is doing that sort of thing constantly. Yeah. And, and trying to imagine if, if such people exist, and if so, if you could study them and see that uh, they might have a better... Uh, I, I think it would be really interesting. So um, there are two scientists, uh, Brad Duchesne, who's at uh, Dartmouth, and uh, Ken Nakayama, who's at Harvard, and they designed this test called the Cambridge Face uh, Recognition Test, CFMT, mm -hmm. Cambridge Face Memory Test. And you can do it online. It's an online test. And they will show you like six faces. And they will show you these faces like among other faces. And you have to say which of the faces you've seen before. And then they'll show them in different illumination and right. different noise. Right. And they have developed this battery of tests to um, predict how well people are in face recognition. So you ask me, how do I know that 2% of the population is bad? Like 30,000 people have taken their test online. And we know how, and people have done it across continents in Israel and Australia. Right. So we have good uh, norms now, right. saying this is a normative range right. uh, of most people. So like these people that are really poor, the 2%, the the, and then there's these people at the top yeah. that are super recognizers. Right. So we've never done this. I've talked a little bit with Brad about the prosopagnostics, but I, it would be really interesting to actually see what's also difficult, exactly. different about people who are really good at exactly. face recognition. They don't right? live in the same town in Germany by any chance, do they? They're, they're, they're I don't know. <laughs> I haven't been to that town in Germany. I cannot also pronounce the name of that town, so, uh, so don't ask it's probably, me. It's probably best to just leave it entirely uh, uh, Anyway, so I think that would be really yeah. interesting, right? Um, and what we are going to do in my lab, we're just launching a very long longitudinal study, take kids, uh, and adolescents, so we are going to take little kids, five to seven-year-olds, uh, preteens, seven to eleven-year-olds, and like early, young adults, like 22, 23-year-olds, and follow them across five years. 
and then we'll be able to measure within the same subject how their brain changes over time, and what we hypothesize is that changes in the children will be bigger than the changes in the adult as, mm. you know, and also those things happen in life. Like when you're like in elementary school, you care about your class, your parents, your extended family, but you know, when you go to college, I don't know where you went to college, but you'll see now hundreds of new people and they're all really interesting because they're all your age, so. Uh, <laughs> anyway, but there are some like places in time where you're going to learn a lot more faces, right. and they become a lot more socially relevant to sure. you. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. So this is kind of uh, why we're interested in doing this longitudinal thing because so far we've only done it cross-sectional, right. and the, you know this will reduce the between subject variability by following the same subject over time. One more question before yes. I leave plasticity, based upon what you said with. Uh, stroke victims and, and so forth. Um, what about, since you're studying vision, what about people who are blind, uh, who, who were either born blind or have become blind? Um, have you had the opportunity to, to do any studies, or do you know of any studies, not necessarily your own, whereby you can see evidence for plasticity going on in the vision processing centers uh, of, the, of the brain? So uh, this is a very good question. I don't do any studies on blinds. There are a bunch of groups throughout the world that study the congenitally blind. Uh, one group is in uh, Harvard with uh, Alvaro Pascalioni and uh, Karamatsa, Alfonso Karamatsa. And another group um, is a group of Amir Ahmedi in Jerusalem and Israel. And the really interesting thing is that I told you like 30% of the brain right. is about visual processing. So what if you have no visual inputs? Like right. does it die? Right. <laughs> it's like, is it not used? So it turns out that there is a lot of recycling. And it turns out that in the blind people, the visual cortex is used for other things. Uh, the earliest study was done by um, Alvaro Pascalone and colleagues, and they showed that the same region I showed you, V1, when you read Braille, it gets activated in the blind people. Really? Compared to when they just like sweep something that doesn't. So the sensory, the sensory guys get get somehow linked to the vision. So and then people have done more experiments, and it looks like it's more about like actually mental representation. It's like you remember the top down stuff that I was talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. So it's actually it's not the the different sensory areas get reconnected, but stuff that's involved in verbal memory and hmm. in language gets recycled it's because you don't have the input, but you still have the top down stuff. And people have actually, um, Alfonso Karamatsa and Brad Mahone have actually made claims that there's specialization, like I showed you, for faces and places right. in the sighted people, also in blind people. So um, it looks like actually maybe the earlier parts of cortex might be more plastic than the higher order level. So these groups are looking into that. And that yeah. I think this, again, like how much is it like, Pre-wired versus how much does your experience mold these regions? Right. right. So this is so just a, a high-level yeah. comment. Uh, yeah. As I said to you before we started filming, um, this is just the coolest field in science it is right really now. Cool. Yeah. I, I, I mean, there's there's so much going on, not only in terms of ideas and high-level people working on it and things to do, but in terms of data and in terms of experiment and in terms of correlations between, between theory and experiment and so forth. Um, my sense is that we were really in, as an objective, ignorant observer, we're, we're, in, a, we're in a golden age yeah. of neuroscience, of cognitive science. Um, is, 
was this the sort of thing that you had imagined would be the case when you started moving into the field? Is it moving faster than you had expected? Is it, is it, are things as sunny and exciting and dynamic as I, as an outside observer, am saying they are in your view? So I was very fortunate to be kind of in the right place in the right time where I, you know, MRI just started kicked in when I was doing my PhD. It was like this whole new thing. And, uh, I, and when I heard, you know, Rafi come and talk about it, I realized immediately that this is going to be a very, very powerful right. technique. So it clearly has revolutionized cognitive neuroscience. And um, like if you'd go like in 97 or 98 to like Society for Neuroscience Conference, in the visions there would be like 11 sessions just on vision. There'd be one session about humans and 10 sessions about animal work. And today this mm. is flipped. Interesting. Uh, because um, a lot of people have realized how powerful it is. So, um, but because of it, it's, it's now some of the discoveries, if you're the first one jumping on the wagon, it's sometimes it's easier to make discovery <laughs> than if you're the hundredth person jumping on the wagon. But we've become, the, and the thing that for me neuroimaging changed the most is that we've become um, more... Um, maybe modest about what we can accomplish, but on the other hand, we've, I've become much more intrigued about how much more complex the system is and how much there's more to un understand. So right. when we talked about the hierarchies, like the models that I was taught when I was in grad school is that this hierarchy has four stages, V1, V2, V4, I'll tell you why V4, not V3, <laughs> and IT, temple of course. So the, if I figure four black boxes, I'm done. Yeah. Now, um, 16 years later, like this black box of IT turns probably to be more like of having at least 10 subregions. Wow. Okay? So, on one hand, like, okay, I'm more modest because I know I cannot figure it by my model from 15 years ago is not valid. But now we have better tools to actually start f tracking and being, making models of these subregions. So, I think we will continue to advance the field much more substantially now just because we have more knowledge than 15 years ago. Yeah. Why, why no V3? Oh, <laughs> uh, this is a speculation. So in humans, as I showed you, V1, V2, and V2 and V3 are about the same size. V1 is a little bigger. Yeah. Uh, in macaque monkeys, V3 is very small. Okay. And second of all, there are connections directly from V2 to V4 that bypass V3. So because it's small, and because it's unclear that having another level is actually going to change the model so much. Okay. People just typically have V1, V2, V4, and then IT. But I think that's wrong. I think we need a V3 there, and humans for sure. You can always call V4, V3. I mean, otherwise, anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, it is in the model, V1, V2, V4, yes. All right. It's your model. Um, it's not my model. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's the field of your colleagues. Yes, it's yeah, it's yeah. your professional model. My professional <laughs> model, yes. Um, and not only uh, has the field changed, obviously, in terms of the results, mm -hmm. obviously, in terms of uh, our level of understanding, but I'm guessing it's also, uh, it's also been transformed somewhat sociologically. Uh, I mean, you're, you're a faculty member. You, you, you're the director of the Vision Lab. You're also the faculty member in the in the Department of Psychology. Mm. Um, when I was a student, I wouldn't come across any faculty members in psychology that were of your particular research persuasion or disposition and mm -hmm. so forth. There has been this whole explosion, it seems to me, in the field of cognitive science 
that has integrated people from across a wide variety of, of, of fields and activities. Has this been, uh, has it been easy, you think, to integrate all these people? What does it feel like for you being a, being a professional psychologist? Is that something that you feel like you're doing? Do these distinctions make any sense whatsoever anymore, or, or has, have things just changed entirely? So um, in our department, we have a specific area that's called uh, neuroscience. Right. So there is neuroscience and psychology, and the neuroscience in our department has existed, I think, even in the 60s. I sure. Yeah. So neuroscience has not really been completely novel to psychology. It's been there for a while. Okay. Um, what's, has ha what had, had initially been focused on, so a lot of psychology department did have animal studies. And these animal studies did you do neuroscience. Sometimes there is, these are in the medical school and sometimes psychology. But I do think that around the 60s and 70s, there was a big revolution in psychology about cognitive psychology that was like the core and this is where all the action is. And today a lot of the major discoveries uh, are happening in uh, neuroscience. But neuroscience has infiltrated all fields of psychology. You could use neuroscience to study personality, you can study depression, you can study right. social uh, perception. There's a field called social uh, neuroscience. Uh, it affects things like that are core of cognitive science, like decision making. Um, so, I don't know if that answered your question Well, it wasn't or not. a really well-posed question, so let me ask another question. Yeah. Let me ask a more specific question, which you may or may not know the answer to, but you'll, have, you'll be closer posed to, to give, it, uh, give a good answer than I would. So do, are there some psychologists who have their nose out of joint and say, these, these bloody, all these brain people are coming to us, all these fMRI people, every single thing is now fMRI. I'm studying why people are... are tremendously upset at life because they were, you, you know, they, they couldn't live up to their father's expectations and now they're making me go into an fMRI lab and, and, and the hell with them. I don't, why don't they get their own bloody department and stay away from mine? Uh, are, there, are, there, are there people, uh, that's going a bit over the top, yeah. but is there, is there a sense of resentment caused by some people who do maybe what others would consider more traditional psychology because now all of a sudden everything is cognitive neuroscience or they have that impression? I, so, so the field of psychology is definitely not everything cognitive neuroscience. The field of psychology has very well-grounded fields, studying effective psychology about studying personality, of studying social interactions, and these fields are still uh, very central to psychology. Right. Um, this field that's been most effective by this is cognitive science, that a lot of the cognitive work today is together with neuroscience. I think when you have people in a group, there's always somebody who's going to feel sure. some resentment for multiple reasons, but I don't really feel that's been an issue for me or in the field in general. And I'm going to leave it at that. Okay, sure enough. Um, the future, one of the things of being a cutting-edge field yeah is not only that there are so many exciting topics to discover, but you get an awful lot of very bright, very capable young people who yeah. are tremendously excited about this, about, about a career in that particular area. So you have this, uh, this luxury of being able to select increasing numbers of very capable mm -hmm. and bright people to be able to, to do work. Um, I'm guessing you're very optimistic about the future. Um, I'd like you to comment on your level of optimism as well as the types of research avenues that you would like to do or that you are excited about learning about that some of your colleagues are doing. So uh, I'm a very optimistic person. I think you cannot <laughs> go doing research if you're a pessimist. Sure. Um, 
And I've been very fortunate that I've been really working with terrific people, and without these terrific people, I wouldn't have been making these discoveries. So uh, our work is very much collaborative work. So if you're doing some theoretical work, you can sit in your office and theorize. This is the experimental work. It really needs a good group of people that are very motivated and very dedicated, and I've been very fortunate about that. And I think the talent is still going to come. Um, in terms of the future, there are several directions that are going to be very important for me personally. At first, these technologies continue to evolve. And I think if we, we are still tr uh, trying to improve in terms of the temporal resolutions of these measurements mm -hmm. and the spatial resolution of these measurements, as well as integrating between different types of data. So I've mentioned about functional MRI and atomical MRI. We're trying to figure out the wiring of the brain. Right. Um, and we, we're actually trying to figure out how we can get to the circuit level, really looking at uh, the cell uh, makeup of these uh, regions. So that mm -hmm. would be something that would be very cool. I think that some of it is science fiction, but, but some, of them, some of it will happen. And because there's a whole field of people who are working on improving the measurements, basically, right. the technology. The second kind of thing that I think is going to happen, and for me it's going to be, this is why it's really an exciting time in vision science, is that on the modeling end, people have really improved the modeling. Since we have also a lot more data, we could start generating the new kinds of model. I call them generative model. So why I call them generative models is that I really would like to model like the neurons in different stages of a processing stream, mm -hmm. figuring out um, the computation that they do and what kind of information that they relate to the next stage, which is a more traditional model, but also having them predict how my brain responses should look for a new kind of stimuli and actually validate that with fMRI. And I think we've started dabbling with this, and I think this is where that's going to be like another major breakthrough in the field when we actually have taken this knowledge, actually predict brain data, and see that we can measure our prediction. I think that'll be extremely cool. Do you have any sort of, albeit speculative, sense of what some of these models might look like or, or might depend on, or just high-level intuition, if you will? Is there anything? I think these models are about what, what information is transformed from one stage to another right. and trying to figure out um, what kind of optimization principles the brain uses. And this is kind of what we're trying to figure out. So why is the brain so organized? Why, so why is it so similar across my brain and yours? Uh, even though I'm guessing, right? Because yeah, well, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't go on the machine. You see, yeah. Right? <laughs> um, and we think that there are some kind of basic uh, computational principles that the brain employs to optimize. It optimizes how efficient things are, how robust things are, and also which kind of information you want to integrate and which kind of information you want to segregate. So I think if we get a handle of this, exactly what kinds of information are important to lumping and what we want to keep separable, I think that's going to make a big breakthrough in these kind of models. Well, that's great. Hope to see Sir? I hope this makes some sense. It makes, well, it makes an enormous amount of sense. It's very inspiring, actually. Uh, it seems, seems fantastic. Before I let you go, okay. uh, I want to do two things. I sure. want to thank you uh, very profoundly and passionately for all of your time and hospitality. And I'd like to ask you if there's anything that we've missed or something that we should have spoken about, uh, given more time to speak about, different implications, different things, something, anything else that we've neglected somehow or could could do more. You know, I can go on time. like this for days and weeks. This is why. I, uh, well, no, no, yeah, no, I'm being quite yeah. serious, though. It's not a perfunctory question. I mean, uh, if, if there are things that are 
because uh, personally, I could, I, could, uh, I could last longer, even though it's quite conceivable the Stanford police will drag me away. Um, <laughs> I think the thing that I really wanted to show you is a video, because I thought that the video is very powerful, and it gives people some insights why this is interesting. Absolutely. Because, I mean, we c this is why it's interesting, because we can go all the way from some brain tissue to perception and trying to build concrete models of how that happened. I think for me that's very intriguing. Right. And I, I hope I have been able to convey this message. I haven't done these things before, so I, I'm not really sure. I think you were great. And I also wanted to show you the MRI scanner because I kind of feel people hear these scanners and they sound very scary and it's like, oh, it's a machine. But you go, you've gone in them lots of times. I go in them all the times. Yeah. I've gone. Yeah, I've been scanned hundreds of times. So why why do you why do you go in them yourself? Is it is it just for more data, or is it or is it to sympathize with the people who were going in them? Or I mean, presumably you don't want the same person going in. Or is it to help train people who? So are... one of the things that's unique about our research, some people will just like I say, my favorite area of the brain is X. So I'm just going to study a bunch of people and just say what X is doing. Right. And one of the things that we are uniquely able to do is to map a lot of areas in the same person's brain and trying to or understand the relationship. To do that, you have to put the person in multiple times. Right. And also, um, you're interested in figuring out the representation. So you will do one experiment to localize the region, and then you're going to do a bunch of experiments uh, to understand different kinds of representation in a given area. So each experiment is now, we're, like one time we say, does the size of things affect things? The next right. day we say, does illumination affect things? So they say, oh, maybe it's a task. <laughs> so, and like between me and my students, like in a day, we can come up with 10 new questions. Right. So it just makes it easier to um, generate a, a more comprehensive study when you don't have to go step one and localize all these regions right. from the beginning. Right. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, do you have, is there anything else that you think we should... Uh that's not just because I know you're interested there. I'm, I, I thought that was fantastic. I thought you did a great job. Is there anything else we should say? You want to say something? No. no I think you guys covered everything. The one thing that I did think of that, in addition to super recognizers, you said once before, we have Williams syndrome. That's true. And it, it does affect plasticity and also people who are more interested in hip-hop because of the, like, the reverse of Yeah. So you want to talk about that? Yeah, that's a good idea, actually. Um. So you asked me about the super recognizers. Um, we've also collaborated with a psychiatrist here at Stanford, who is the Alan Reese's lab. Mm -hmm. And he studies um, a variety of people who have uh, genetic disorders. Okay. And uh, Williams syndrome is one of these disorders. It's a, a deletion on chromosome 7, so it's kind of like Down syndrome. You're born like that. And well, the reason that we got interested in Williams syndrome or Alan got us interested in Williams syndrome, um, is that uh, Williams syndromes um, are very approachable to people. They're very, they really like people. They kind of oh, stare at people's face. Uh, but they're not close to, there's a, fine, a Seinfeld with a close talker, were they, were they these kind of people? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember that episode <laughs> okay. of Seinfeld. But um, Williams syndrome also have like a characteristic face. It kind of like Down syndrome, they have an elfin okay, face. Okay. So they have a characteristic face. Right. And, um, they're not so good with spatial vision. They're yeah. actually not so good with spatial vision, but they're really awesome at remembering people's faces. So they'll see a person once, like in a supermarket, and like five years later, say, oh, I've seen you. Uh, and people in studying them 
wanted to know if like this is like, so their cognitive abilities have some strengths and some downsides. So like they don't have very good spatial vision or spatial mm -hmm. comprehension, but their language and music is very good, and mm -hmm. then their face recognition is very good. So we were interested to see if are they, is it something that's relatively good despite other things being different about their brains? Or is it said they have something different about their brain that makes them maybe even better than typical right. subjects? Right. So we've done these fMRI experiments like we do in typical adults, in adults with Williams syndrome. So basically we put them in the scanner and show them pictures of faces and objects of places and some just random patterns. And they do find the same regions in the fusiform is that show higher responses to faces compared to non-faces. And I did it with a postdoc in my lab. Her name is Golije Golari. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting about the Williams syndrome is that their brains are a little bit smaller. They're about 10% smaller mm -hmm. on average than a typical person. And this fusiform gyrus that I just described to you before, this is where we normally find right. these face selective regions, is also smaller in the Williams syndrome. Okay. But if you look at their brains, they have absolutely more parts of their temporal lobe involved in faith processing than hmm. typical, and more so if you accommodate for the fact um, that um, their fusiform is smaller. And so by more parts, do you mean more integrated, these, these This is basically, or? like if you just think, like how much of my fusiform gyrus is normally devoted for to face processing, so it's usually maybe a quarter of my fusiform gyrus. Mm. But in the Williams syndrome, it's like much more. It's like, it's just a bigger expanse mm. is just devoted to processing faces. So then this is a case where it's kind of interesting. So you say, are they born like that? Or is it something about their experience because, um, they're interested in faces throughout their lifespan, and they basically just sure. become more expert at it. And my colleague, Alan Reese, the way that he thinks about it is that when you're a baby, you're naturally attracted to faces. And maybe what happens was, but at some point you start getting interested in other stuff, like how to manipulate objects, or you, know, you do all kinds of baby stuff. But maybe what happens in the Williams syndrome is that what's genetic in them is that this interest in faces doesn't get shut down hmm. and in the same typical ways that they don't stop getting interest in faces and start getting interest in other things. And because of this, their experience is very much um, more driven by faces than a typical subject and therefore then they develop this more brain hardware that's kind of seems to be interested in coding faces, and that gives them their extra ability. So it's not necessarily the case that their brain has been wired. No, it's a nurture argument. Yeah, uh, but this is an example of how nature and nurture might interact to shape, because you asked me about plasticity, right? right, right, right. right to shape like neural representations in the brain. Right. So it happens in the same place, but how much of it, or how specialized it becomes, might be, be dependent on your a lifelong experience. Well, absolutely. If, if this hypothesis is correct, as I understand it, then that's clearly another argument for increased plasticity because their brain is changing in a way that uh, that other brains at that age would not be. That is to say, they're emphasizing this yes. action over another, and that's having some neurophysiological consequences yeah. and so forth. Well, that was wonderful. Thank you very much, Kalina. That was wonderful. It was very, very uh, informative and stimulating, and, and uh, that's fan those two data points, man, they're mm -hmm. fantastic. Yes. <laughs> no, I agree with you. It's, it's a very rare case. We're, we have 
we're looking at now, we have, we're accumulating more subjects. So we're going to look at more subjects. Yeah, yeah, of, of, yeah I mean, this is why we, like, he's just a scientist. This is a pig that speaks, so we're going to find a bunch of them. <laughs> well, but it, I mean, it's great. That guy also, I should say, seemed to have just a fantastic attitude. I mean, he seemed like a, a great guy. That whole, wow, that's a trip, man. <laughs> no, I mean, this is like, it's more that we can ask for, right? This is like, this is, he was very articulate. He was, you know, yeah. very intelligent. Uh, and yeah, we got lucky sometimes. We get to get a little bit lucky. Yeah. So has he been following these things as well? He's I mean, so, he's we, like a smart guy. So. He's, he's a smart guy. He's local. He's, he lives here in the Bay Area. And, and actually, when um, this got out, there was some like local press here. And we actually asked the person from Stanford to interview him as well. Right. So, and he, I think um, he felt good about that, that we actually incorporated him into uh, the study. And he's now well. He didn't get surgery in the end for epilepsy. Oh, and the reason that the, the place that they found this epilepsy was somewhere in the parietal lobe, very far away than when we measured. And if they had resected it, he would get some blind field in his vision. They didn't want to, to decrease his quality of life. Sure, sure. But then after all this thing happening at Stanford, he became well. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Neuroscience, along with separate discussions with John Duncan, Lisa Feldman Barrett, Jennifer Grow, and Miguel Nicolelis. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. But those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.